First Corinthians chapter, First Thessalonians chapter one. Last Sunday I spoke about the need of a vision, the need to have a direction that a vision will give us. And as I closed that sermon, I asked the question about what do you know about the church in Thessalonica? The first incidence that we have with seeing anything about the church in Thessalonica is in Acts chapter 17. And it's not in a very positive way. We know that Paul preached there for three weeks. That's what we're told in Scripture. It may be that it's possible, it seems to me probable, that he was there a little bit longer than that time frame. But we know he was there, according to Luke, for three Sabbath days. And in such a short a time, he brought many to Christ. But if he left in three weeks, it's a concern that he would have had would have been, how's that church doing? Later on in the text, we're told the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they searched the scriptures daily to see that these things were so. You think about a church that is more noble than another one, and it may seem to you that that church isn't really what God intended it to be, at least at that point in time. But when we see and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I think Paul was very pleased with what he did in his work there and what they did with themselves. Paul says in chapter chapter 1, short chapter, 10 verses, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give, God, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by, his, by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know. What kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report to report about us what kind of, of reception we had with you. How you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Reading that chapter, I get a slightly different picture of the church in Thessalonica than what one might get with just a casual reading of Acts chapter 17. Obviously, the church in Thessalonica was a church of great nobility. And they did search the scriptures. They did give themselves to God. Slightly different picture. In fact, both books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, tell us a picture of a church that we see at the end of of chapter 1. That they were an example to other churches in their area. And that's what I want us to talk about, because as we look at making, having a vision for ourselves, I think this church can offer us much today as an example, 
and how we can become an example to other people and to other congregations of God. That first one he mentions that Paul said in verse 3, he says, We're constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. Faith. That's the reason we serve. And one of the things that the world will see as we live in Christ is our faith, is your faith. If we're going to be able to spread the gospel, our faith must be marked by the work that we're involved in, the labor that we're doing in it. It's work. I'm reminded of what James said in chapter 2. We talked about faith and works. James chapter 2, and we could go from 14 through the end of the chapter, but I'm going to read the chapter, four, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, where James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. If the world can't see us out amongst it, does it even know we exist? Think about the 100,000 people that live in Yuma. Do they know that Central is here? There are probably a good number of them that don't. Because they don't drive by this location very often. Because what is there down here? No, there's a furniture store at the end of the block. There's a radio station and a flower shop over here. There's a mortuary next to us. There's a CPA. Some people will see us. They'll know our location, but do they know us? Do they know what we stand for? Just think about this. What would happen if none of us had a working faith? What would happen to the church? Would it grow? Would it die? Think about this. In the Revelation letter in chapters 2 and 3, John was given a message to write to the seven churches of Asia. Where are they today? Now, I don't know where they are. Maybe they morphed into something else. But maybe they're totally gone. But are there any left of that initial group that today... There are none of those left. But could anybody today tie their faith back to when John wrote the Revelation letter? Interesting question. Think about us now. Tomorrow, will there be any that can tie their faith to us here at Central? And if not, why not? If there won't be, why won't there be? What will happen to us if we don't have a work of faith? What would happen to the lost? Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The price has been paid. 
But if someone doesn't tell them, faith comes by hearing, Paul said in Romans 10, 17, hearing by the word of God, how shall they hear without a preacher? And how will they have a preacher unless someone sends one? That's why it's important that we send people preaching the gospel so that the lost have an opportunity to hear or they will stay lost. All aspects of the Christian life stem from your response to faith. The faithful person will show his faith by his activity. But if our activity is confined to Sunday morning, that's not a very strong faith. It's not very much alive. There is no such thing as a, I'm kind of a Christian. If your faith is not working, your faith is either non-existent or it's very weak. On occasion, I have heard, and perhaps you have as well, people will say they have faith. But they're just not doing anything right now. They're not, really, they're not going to church, or if they are, it's very sporadically. They're not doing much else for the Lord. And yet sometimes I'll have those same people say, I have a strong relationship with God. I just don't do anything with the church. How can you have a strong relationship with God when you don't have a relationship with His people? Can you? I remember sitting in the office one day, years and years ago, brother in Christ, going through some issues, and he was talking about, we were talking about his not attending. And I just told him, I said, if you cut yourself off from the body, you'll die. And he took some exception to that, and I just said, humor me. Let me cut your finger off. And if we cut your finger off and went right down to the medical center here, they could reattach it. And you'd probably have full use of it. He said, yeah. I said, what if we just throw it out in the dumpster or on the sidewalk and just leave it there? What will happen to your finger? We'll leave it there for two or three days. Will they be able to reattach it? If they reattach it, will it cause further infection in your body? Or will it reattach itself and grow and be useful like it is today? And he said, it won't last two or three days. You put it in ice and you immediately get the severed limb, the severed part of the body to the hospital so you have a chance. That's the way it is with the body of Christ. If you remove yourself from the body... You stand in danger of dying. People like this have made up a system of religion in their minds is that instead of following and serving and loving Jesus, their religion tells them to please themselves. They will later try to claim that they're among the saved after a life of not serving. And they will wonder why Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Some of the new things that come are those things that we do with our lives today. So we ask ourselves the question, which direction are we pointing? What kind of works are we doing? What kind of works are you doing? Are they selfish or selfless? Or are you just on Facebook taking selfies? The lost will not come to Jesus just because our building is open. 
no matter how much we want to believe that, they are not going to come here and just happen to be here because they didn't have anything better to do on a Sunday morning. They're only going to come if we invite them. They're only going to come if we have a relationship with them that they'll say, okay, I'll come. If we say that we're concerned about them. The lost will not come. Winning souls takes a lot of work. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 talks about a faith that is living and active that pleases God. Abraham was called. He believed God and he left. Enoch walked with God. I still want to know about Enoch. He didn't die. He's got to be one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And we know so little about him. But he had to have tremendous faith that was active. To me, there is no such thing as an inactive faith, really. You either have faith or you don't. And faith without works is dead. A faithless church where works are lacking. If not already, it will soon be a dead church. But Paul goes on to tell them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3, I know not only your work of faith, but your labor of love. That's the attitude behind the service that you do behind the work. When you talk about work, there are many motivations to get up and work. We can be motivated by fear. We can be motivated by a sense of duty and obligation. We can be motivated by a sense of money, greed. There are problems with fear. It doesn't last very long. You'll get tired. It may be a good motivator initially, but if there's no direction, you'll leave it alone, you'll flee, or you'll just be paralyzed. You won't know what to do. If it is greed, if the focus is on money, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, one cannot serve God and mammon. One cannot serve God and riches. The question without money is, it's open. How much is enough? Is there ever enough? And this results in shortcuts when people want to just love money, which Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6 was the root of all sorts of evil. Nothing wrong with money in itself, it's a tool. But when you result in shortcuts, a lack of integrity, and ethical problems. It's been a few years now, but it's still in the news. You can probably still find it. But those people who use an EpiPen, several years ago... You would get one, and I think it was maybe $57 for a pen. This was several years ago. And then they convinced people, doctors convinced them, you need to, you need to have a two-pack. Well, that automatically makes your, your cost 114 That's not too bad, because they say, and they last only a year. They expire after a year. Because if you don't have a reaction, if you don't get to a doctor in, within 30 minutes after the first injection, you probably need another one. It's just a dose of adrenaline to open up your airways and speed up the heart so you don't go into anaphylactic shock. But what happened was the company bought them. And then once they get the government paying for a two-pack, they raised the price to $614, I think it was. A lot of people can't afford those now. Greed in the company. He was the owner of the company was brought under governmental, you know, Senate and House investigation. What's going on? Greed is not a sufficient motivator because it falls short. It causes all sorts of problems. But love is. When motivated by love, you'll do almost anything for that person. 
We'll put up with a lot from someone that we love. We'll do a lot for someone that we love. We labor for the Lord because we love Him. And we love people. A person who is lost will usually live for themselves. A person who belongs to Christ will live their lives for the benefit of others. Because it's not about me anymore. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that he had an obligation. He was a debtor to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And he wasn't ashamed to go and preach the gospel. For it was the power of God until salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. It was love that motivated him. Was there a sense of duty in that? Yes. Because he had been saved and given so much, he had an obligation. But most, most of all, it was a sense of love. Love for God. And as we love God, who loved all, we in turn have that love of God for them as well. But the question is, those who are not part of God's family, do we love them as much as God does? Do we love them enough to get out of our comfort zone? You might get a door shut in your face. You might have someone say, I don't want to talk about that. But we don't have to be disagreeable. We'll just say calmly, I'm asking because I care. And if you ever want to talk, well, I'll talk. Today, we love each other at Central. Most people in most churches love one another. Their programs are geared to themselves, though, their likes and dislikes, not toward seeking and saving the lost. Reaching the lost is a labor of love, and you have to be willing, you have to really love Jesus to do so. The labor of love here is strenuous labor. It's the Greek word kapos, denoting primarily a striking, a beating, later coming to mean toil, resulting in weariness and laborious toil and trouble. It is labor that will wear you out like I did for four summers when I was in high school, throwing hay bales, 8 to 12 hours a day. Hot, hard work. Love is not just an empty emotion. Love is a work. When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that chapter on love, Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels that don't have love, I'm noisy. A noisy gong and clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, have all knowledge, can have faith to remove mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but don't have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffer. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. Love is the attitude of the heart. It's dependent upon the object of the love. Not on the object of the love, but on the lover. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Loved the world. See, his love was dependent upon him, not upon us. We were enemies of God, Paul said in Romans chapter 5. Enemies of Christ when he loved us, when he gave his son to die for us. You cannot command a person to feel. 
they are going to naturally feel. But Jesus said in John 13, 35, 34 and 35, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. By this your love for one another, all men will know that you're my disciples. He commanded love. Our love for God and for people should be evident to people everywhere. And then there's one last one that he talked about in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn back to my Bible. And he said, not only do we remember your work of faith, your labor of love, but your steadfastness of hope. Steadfastness of hope. Life without hope is not much life. When times are difficult, when people reject the message that you're pouring into their heart, the only thing that you can hold on to is hope. When you're going through trials and tribulations with difficulties in life, the only thing that you can hold on to is hope. Priscilla Owens wrote this song, 467. I was distracted and had to talk with somebody between her and asked Bill to lead this song. We're not going to sing it right now. I'm not that good of a song leader, but I will read the words. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? When the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cable strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? It is safely moored, will the storm withstand, for it is well secured by the Savior's hand. And the cables passed from his heart to mine can defy the blast through strength divine. When our eyes behold through the gathering night the city of gold, our harbor bright, we shall anchor fast by the heavenly shore with the storms all past forevermore. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Hope in Jesus allows you to endure the tough times of life. It will motivate us to reach the lost because we understand without Jesus they have no hope. Consider what Paul went through. As we're studying 2 Corinthians on Sunday mornings, I encourage you to, if you're not attending our class on 2 Corinthians, please come. Uh, in chapter 11, this is what Paul went through. Defending his apostleship, he asked the question about the false apostles, the super apostles. He said, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I've received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, and night and day I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, from robbers, from countrymen, from the Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's a pressure on me of concern for all the churches. I think, I don't know how he endured, except for his love for God, except for his hope of that heavenly crown that would be his. Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, I count all things as loss that I might gain Christ. He says, that's where it is. That gave him his hope. 
That kept him from quitting and going back to the comfort of Judaism. It was his hope in Jesus that produced strength and steadfastness. Steadfastness is a word that conveys the idea of endurance, of perseverance. It denotes the staying un- when the condition of staying when under great pressure. It means when things get tough, you don't quit. You press on. Hope is a confident expectation about the future. Claire Booth is credited with this statement. There are no hopeless situations. There are only men who have grown hopeless about them. No hopeless situations. Only those who have grown hopeless about them. There's always something. Our ability to hang on in tough times of trouble should be evident for everyone to see. And the church in Thessalonica did all of this. They were this way. This is how they lived. Their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. Why? Verse 5 gives us a peek on it and then we'll develop it more next week. But he says to them, find it here, that they were a full conviction Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, also in power in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, verse 5, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Full conviction. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, I know whom I have believed, that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. And just a short time later, you know, minutes later, he's writing Second or Second Timothy four and verse six, saying, "I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand." Minutes, minutes. How long does it take to write a letter? Not very long. Paul had full conviction. The only reason that we'll get let the Word of God change us is if we go into the Scriptures with full conviction about the truthfulness of the message. As you read your Bible, as you do research to find out about the reliability of God, the evidences for God and the reliability of His Word, that grounds you and gives you conviction. Today, too many do not follow Jesus with full conviction in what He says is true. They want to believe that it's open to interpretation. They don't have full conviction that Jesus may be even be the Son of Man. We're not fully convinced about heaven and hell, too many of us, and that without being faithful to Jesus, we're subjecting ourselves to the reality of spending an eternity in hell. No, if we're a full conviction, we are sold out completely to Jesus. If you're fully convinced that Jesus is who He claims to be, and that the Word of God is what it claims to be, You'll do whatever it says. And so Paul looks at the church that he planted in Acts chapter 17. He is thankful for their faith. The evidence of their faith was that they had a work of faith, a labor of love, steadfastness of hope, and deep conviction. Many times we don't take Jesus and tell him to take us past just being moral and good people to get out of our homes on Sunday morning and come to church. And that's the extent of it. But if we're saved, we will work for Jesus. We will serve one another and love one another, but we will do as Jesus did. We will seek to save the lost. There will be 
bumps along the way, but our steadfastness of hope will help us stay in there. We'll never carry out God's mission for us unless we have an active faith motivated by love and hope. And so we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to go into the world and show them that we're changed by man from Nazareth. Jesus, the Son of God. The question in the song 904 is, have you been to Jesus? Have you been to Jesus? If not, today is the perfect day to come to Him and start a life of faith, of love, and of hope. If you have been to Jesus, maybe you've found yourself in this sermon saying, well, maybe I don't quite match up to what those brethren were in Thessalonica. Maybe I need to do some changing. So the invitation is to come to Jesus if you have any need. Well, together we stand and while we sing. Amen.